Hi, Pastor John here, welcoming you to our broadcast. Today, we're in part two of our Christmas series, The Angels of Christmas, and we're going to take a look at Joseph from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why no one ever quotes Joseph, husband of Mary, father of Jesus? We're going to find out the answer today in Actions Speak Louder. Let me get something out of the way right away. I got a new vest. Somebody <laughs> that I thought was my friend this morning came up and said, my, how festive. I said, thank you. They said, was that a gift? <laughs> now that we got that out of the way, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25 and following, but let me read 18 through 25 for you. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, am I in the right place here? I am. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, just, I, I'm sorry. I, I start working on um, the next week's sermon uh, Saturday night, so uh, I, it's easy to get me confused these days. And anyway, child from the Holy Spirit, verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. I used to work in a tops and bottoms place called the bottom half. We sold t-shirts and jeans. Um, and I, I was very ambitious, 23 years old, and I wanted to be a supervisor. They, they, they said, if you work hard enough, you can be a supervisor. And uh, the, the guy who was my supervisor was kind of my mentor uh, and somebody that I really looked up to. And uh, he came over to our house and uh, I introduced him to my mom and dad. And we spent about an hour or so together, and, and we left. And the next day, my dad called me. He said, who is that guy? He said, he's my supervisor. I'm going to be like him. He said, oh, you need to be real careful with him. I don't trust him. Oh, Dad. So, Because my dad knew very little about life, and I knew everything about it. <laughs> you know. And he said, what does he tell you? I said, he tells me if I work hard that I can become a supervisor like him. And he says, John, you can be careful not to do what he says, but watch what he does. 
Okay, so I'm here today to tell you that one of the lessons I learned back then, and I'm still learning, is that the things that you do are more important than the things that you say. The things you do are more important than the things you say. Now, we're going to see this in our passage. This is part two of Angels of Christmas. Now, last week we heard about Gabriel, one of the angels, angel who visited Zechariah, who is a priest, and Zechariah was the husband of Elizabeth, and they were a childless couple, but they were also righteous. Now, by righteous, we mean that today we would look upon them and go, they're, they're pretty good people. Some people would call them good people. God used them mightily and used the silence that was imposed upon Zechariah as both a consequence and a blessing. Now, I challenge you to spend some time in silence over the holidays. I'm eager to hear some testimonies on how this is like. Just spend an hour just sitting and listening to the Lord. Don't get active. Don't talk to him. Just see what he has to say to you. Uh, so, uh, let's ponder what God is doing in our wills and, and in our lives, uh, even now as we focus on the baby that takes us back to our salvation. So, this week we're going to take a look at Joseph, a man who was betrothed to a young girl named Mary, a young man about to start a new life with his brand new bride and raise a family and f- for no other purpose than to live a life of faith. Uh, a life that he had already been practicing, uh, a life that had been passed down by his forefathers. And like Zechariah, God has a challenge for this young boy. How's he going to react? So the name of our sermon today is Actions Speak Louder. Let me give you some context for what's happening here. Matthew begins with a genealogy. Has anybody read through that recently? Don't raise your hands. That Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham. And I got to tell you something, Matthew's Jewish audience would appreciate this, knowing that the genealogy of the person that they're talking about goes all the way back to Abraham. It's divided up into three sets of 14 generations. We don't want to get too technical on that because the author of Matthew is trying to show us something here. And what he wants us to see is that there was planning and intention and everything that was going on, all the events leading up to what we call the incarnation, the appearance of God in the flesh. There was, there was harmony. Uh, there, was, there was some balance in all of this. There was God's fingerprints on the history of Israel, the history of the Jews, and all of it culminates with the appearance of the Christ. Now, this is an office. We'll talk about that, okay? So we have this historical context for what's going to happen. These, these passages are not disassociated from each other. So we're going to take a look at Joseph's struggle. We'll see Joseph's dilemma in verse 18. We'll see Joseph's decision in verse 19. We'll see his dream, and actually a couple of them, in verses 20 through 25. And then we'll see Joseph dash. I, I had to work on that one. And in verses... Uh, in Matthew 2, verse 13 through 15. So let's take a look at Joseph's dilemma. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary, now Mary's name, watch this, means bitterness. It comes from a root word that means sorrow. 
and trouble. And we know the story, and we know there's a lot of accuracy to that. So, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Joseph's name means may God increase, amen? Okay, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is familiar enough that if we don't stop and think about it, we don't get a full concept of what's happening here. This betrothal, this is legally binding. The way a betrothal would take place is it would happen before a, a group of witnesses in the community. It'd be kind of like a formal ceremony, and three gifts would be exchanged. There would be the bride's price, and that would be paid to the family of the bride. There would be a dowry, and that would be a gift from one of the fathers, maybe both of them, to help this young couple get started in their new lives. And then there would be the groom's gift to the bride, which would be a symbol of his commitment to her. And people would, at that point, be calling them husband and wife. But intimacy and, and the, the, the whole idea of intimacy would change going from region to region. But in Galilee, where this would have taken place, intimacy was strictly prohibited, forbidden. And during that time, unfaithfulness was considered adultery, a sin. And the penalty... The penalty was stoning. And Mary is pregnant. I can't even begin to tell you how devastating this would be for somebody like Joseph. Probably 15, 16 years old. Some people think maybe as old as 18. Okay. But he's got his life before him. He's got it all laid out. His bride is chosen. He's looking forward to this. Looking forward to being part of his community, to contributing to it, to raising a family. And now this happens. And by this time, Mary, if we follow the timeline, Mary's about four months pregnant. It didn't happen recently. It's been at least four months ago. To Joseph, Mary had very clearly sinned. And as a righteous, faithful man, as a practicing Jew, he can't marry her be condoning and participating in the sin. And his dilemma is, what am I going to do? Can we relate to that? Do we ever find ourselves in situations in life where we don't know what to do, where the situation may be overwhelming us, where it's so so difficult to see a path forward that, that we can't even imagine how we're going to navigate this? That's where Joseph is. His anchor line's just been cut. He has to make a decision. That starts in verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, this isn't Joseph being callous. It's not him being cold. It's not that he has no concern for Mary. He loves her. This would be what would be expected of him. And for all he knows, all the evidence points towards Mary being unfaithful. 
And not only would Joseph be condoning her sin, but he would bring it into his family. They would be stained for life and live outside the blessing of God. That was the Jewish theology. If you did what God told you to do, he blessed you. If you did what he told you not to do, he withheld his blessing. So Joseph's looking at, if he goes through with this, his family is never going to be blessed by God, which means his descendants will not be blessed by God. By all the standards of the day, Joseph would be making the correct decision to divorce Mary. He would actually be legally bound to divorce her, which, by the way, would be the only way to break off the betrothal. There was no returning the ring to the jeweler. There was no, let's call this off. We don't get along that well. We're not compatible I'll find someone else. That's not how that worked. Now, there were two, uh, two ways to break this betrothal off. One of them was very public. Joseph would make an announcement to the community that Mary had been unfaithful, and the proof of that would be her pregnancy, and Joseph would no longer be bound to her. Okay, that would be very effective, but it would not only disgrace Mary, but would most likely end up with her being stoned. Adultery was a serious offense. And then the other way to do it was to do it quietly, the scripture says. And to do that, he would need two or three witnesses to gather in some room somewhere. They would be informed of Mary's condition. There would be an assumption of confidentiality there. They would make a vow, and Joseph would be released from the betrothal, and they would just kind of walk away from it. And, and the, the problem with that was how Mary would fare after that was totally unsure. Her pregnancy was obvious. It was going to be more apparent with each passing day. She would either live in shame for the rest of her life, or she would have to adopt a most unholy lifestyle for a godly woman in order to survive. You see the implications? Joseph is a just man. He's righteous in much the same way that Zechariah was righteous, the way Elizabeth was righteous. And Joseph, being a good Jewish person, his righteousness is precious to him. And he wants to maintain it. But because, because he's a good man and compassionate and loving towards Mary, he decides to do all this quietly. There's no question about what he has to do. The only question is, how's he going to go about doing it? So once he makes that decision, now he's got to sit and ponder what the mechanics look like. And I've got to tell you something. This is the decision of a heartbroken and broken man. He's shattered, and he struggles with what he's about to do. Now, I want you to think about this, because, you know, Joseph kind of has a bit part in the gospel, doesn't he? He's always kind of standing off to the side, watching things. Okay? This right here is the pivotal moment in the Christmas narrative. Do you understand this? The, Joseph holds all the cards. If he acts upon the law, Mary will most likely die. If he acts upon his heart, he and his family are going to be shamed for life and live in dishonor. His decision is crucial to what happens to Mary and the baby. He's about to move on his decision. Thoughts of the Messiah are probably the furthest thing from his mind than you can imagine. 
So let's take a look at this dream that he has. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord. Now, we don't know who this angel is. It may be Gabriel. It might not be Gabriel. The angel, and we, we need to understand this in all the narrative. The names of the angels are not important. That's not the most important thing. What's important is the message. The angels always bear a message. And in Matthew, they appear at important junctures in, in the life of Christ, in the ministry of Christ. They're there at his birth, at his infancy, uh, chapters 1 and 2. They're there at his baptism in chapter 4. And they're there at the resurrection scenario, aren't they? Angels hanging around the tomb, chapter 28. Now, this angel, whoever he is, appeared to him in a dream, the scripture says. In the ancient world, dreams were highly regarded, not just by the Jews, but by everyone. They were both something that naturally occurred, and they were also considered to be a means of divine communication. When one of the gods wanted to speak, frequently he would do it through a dream. Now, in the Old Testament, for the Jews, they considered that it's kind of the same thing. That dreams are considered to happen naturally. We can see that in, the, in Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, it happens divinely. You know, we can see that in Genesis 28, uh, Daniel chapter 2. And it, it, we even see dreams originating from evil sources. Deuteronomy 13, Jeremiah 23. The runs from, the, from God, the messages from God in the Old Testament, highlight what's happening to Israel at that particular time, what's happening in individuals. It's, they, they, they deal with current affairs or, or with future events, something that's close by to happening. In the New Testament, we see angels in the Gospels, and in the Gospels, they only show up in Matthew. Think about it. It's the only time we read about angels in the Gospel narrative, and they're always related to Christ and something to do with his ministry. They always provide some form of supernatural guidance for the people around Christ or for Jesus himself. They kind of like the way, and it's kind of everything that we're seeing right here in this narrative with Joseph. Joseph's story reminds us of another Joseph in Scripture who was a dreamer. This guy's a dreamer. Uh, we have Joseph, son of Jacob, uh, one of the one of the, the forefathers of the 12 tribes. That Joseph had some dreams too. And in his dreams, uh, there was the future was revealed to him, the future of Israel, future of Joseph. And that Joseph kind of naively shared his dreams with his brothers. That didn't work out real well. And it worked out even less well when he shared it to his mother and father. So let's see how this Joseph handles these dreams. Look at what the angel tells him. He says, Joseph, son of David. Okay, so now we go back to our genealogy. The angel is just affirming that Joseph is of the lineage of David. Uh, he's a descendant of David. He says, do not fear. There's that phrase again. You know, when angels show up, they usually have bad news. So they have to say, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Do not fear what? To take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. According to the angel, Mary, Mary's telling the truth. This changes everything. Okay, yeah, it changes everything for Joseph. But I want you to think about what's happening here. 
Because at, at, at a casual glance, we might miss this. The angel says the, the baby is conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is active in an all-new way. In the Old Testament, up until this point, the Spirit was a force that was filling, guiding, working upon God's people. With this news, the Spirit is now working in God's people. Do you see the change? It's the first hint of what will occur at Pentecost. With the outpouring of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the angel's news, Joseph's dream, watch this changes redemptive history. Everything changes pivoting upon this moment. And that's not all. The Holy Spirit is working in people. Verse 21, the angel says, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. No big thing there. That was kind of a common name back then. Greek equivalent of Joshua, Lord of Salvation. And because of its popularity, this is why we see frequently Jesus is referred to in the scriptures as Jesus of Nazareth, that's where he was from, or Jesus the Christ. Um, again, we've talked about this. Christ is not his last name. It's his office. And it means the anointed one. So this anointed one, watch this, will save his people from their sins. Do you realize what an upheaval this is? Because up until this point, the only deal, way to deal with the, the sins was for the priest to go in and start making sacrifices. Now a baby is going to save people from their sins. Joseph's son is the Messiah. He's the promised redeemer. And this has been revealed to him through the word of God. Indeed, it's been spoken of for centuries Verse 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken of by the prophet. That's taken from Isaiah uh, chapter 7, verse 14, which in context, I want you to think about this, really deals with a separate series of events. Yes, it is prophetic, but it's not the first time that we see, in, in Joseph's case, it's not the first time that we see the prophecy of a virgin birth that happens in Isaiah. If you look at the verses immediately following Isaiah 7, 14, um, Philip read them at the beginning of the service. They all have to do with Isaiah's time. They deal with the, the, the nation of Judah and with the king of Assyria. See, so all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7, God was showing his children how he does things, how he functions with his creation. He's getting them ready for the main event in which he would turn everything upside down, and that starts right here. He was going to redeem his people through Mary's baby. Wow. How does Joseph respond to that? Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not, verse 25, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph's dream is clearly from God. And, and look at this. He doesn't analyze it. He doesn't walk around going, let me think about this for a while. He doesn't seek counsel from his friends. Hey, guess what happened to me? 
What do you think about this? What do you think I ought to do? He doesn't go to a priest to see if he's hearing this right. He doesn't even, he doesn't even pray about it. The scriptures don't tell us that he does. I'm assuming he doesn't. He just does what he's been told to do. Wow. What a concept. You know, the baby's born. The wise men show up. Let's talk about those guys for a second. Yeah. They're not there on the night the baby was born. I mean, we've got to take this in context. They were there at maybe a year, maybe as much as two years afterwards. So they're, they're, not, they're not in our nativity scene. Sorry about that. They're not kings. They're magi, magi, whichever way you want to pronounce that, which really means just really important people. They were probably astrologers, probably came from the region that Daniel was exiled to because they obviously know the scriptures. They know them well. And there's, there's no indication that there are three of them. You know where the three comes from? Church tradition, somewhere around the third, fourth century. But there's nothing in the scripture that says there were three. And I'll tell you something else. You know those little silhouettes you see of them walking along the ridge and there's three camels and the stars in the sky? That would, that would have been suicide for them to, to go through the countryside. They're about 900 miles ahead to go with all of these precious gifts. They would never have made it. They would have been I mean, in a caravan. They probably had their own people with them. They probably had hundreds of people with them, taking months to make this trip. So they're not by themselves. We're not even sure they're wise. But they get to, they get to Jerusalem, and an angel visits them. No indication that they're godly people. But they have their own visitation. And the angel tells them about Herod and says, watch out, because Herod wants to kill the baby. And so they do. They go visit the baby. They find him. And they leave by another route. And then, and then Joseph has yet another dream. Verse, uh, chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 13. Now, when they had departed... The, the Magi. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, Joseph rose, and took the child and his mother by night and departed. He went right away and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So he goes to Egypt, and Joseph and Mary stay there for a while until Herod dies. Verse 19 of Matthew 2. But when Herod died, behold, look, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Another dream. Are we seeing a pattern here? Are we watching something happen? Does God speak to Joseph at significant moments of his life, at crucial moments in God's plan? Does God address this situation succinctly? 
Look, it happens again in verse 20. He says, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream again, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that it would be called a Nazarene. So Joseph dashes all over the Mideast, taking his family with him at every step, all based on the words of these angels. Why did he do that? Because he was a just man. Because he revered the word of God. Because the word of God was brought directly to him. And he listened to it. So there's, there's Joseph's struggle. His dilemma, he's in, he's in a tough, tough place. He knows what he should do. But he loves Mary. He's been planning on his future and his family with her. And all of his hopes and all of his dreams are in jeopardy. And besides that, the law compels him to take action in a way he had never anticipated, in a way he had never dreamed of. So he has to make this decision. And he knows what he should do, but nothing about what he should do is easy. And it's not really what he wants to do. If only... If only there was a way out. You ever feel that way? You ever find yourself in a tight situation? God, give me a way out. I think we need to be careful with that. Because he just might. Because what he calls Joseph to do is not easy. I mean, he could have gotten out of there scot-free. <laughs> Calls him to do the hard thing. So then we have these dreams. Joseph's decision to put her away quietly is reversed by nothing other than the angel's message. But keep in mind that the only thing that the angel brings to Joseph is the word of God. God's guidance in the life of one of his precious children. And we see this dash Joseph moves every time an angel speaks. Notice the text never tells us if it's the same angel. We don't know. We'll talk more about angels next week. I think the scripture is vague on whether or not it's the same angel. I think it's on purpose. Because it's not the angel that the Lord wants us to focus upon. It's his word. It's his divinely inspired word. So what, this is great, right? What do, what do we learn from this? What, what do we take home from this? One lesson is that God meets his chosen ones at their moment of need. And if you've been a believer for a while, you know that's true. It's not always what we want, but it is what we need. And he does it in and through his word. Here's another lesson. We have, we have nothing to fear about God's word. You know, sometimes we'll read it and go, oh, I don't know. That seems hard. I don't think I want to do that. We have nothing to fear. As long as we are obedient to God's word, God will bless us. 
And it's not about the angels again. It's not about being afraid of angels or having a desire to have some similar experience because we could look at this and go, gee, I wish, I wish an angel would come down and talk to me. I've had those thoughts. You know, the difference between Joseph and us is we have all the advantages because we have God's complete word. God very graciously filled in some blanks for Joseph, which he would fill in for us completely, even as we read this. So we could look for a similar experience, but what's really happening here is we're learning that this is about God's guidance, God's direction, which is infallible and unfailing and complete in Jesus Christ and completely recorded here in the Bibles that we have. So we can go on for a long time speaking of things like compassion and mercy and grace and providence and a host of all other teachings. We could spend months just looking at what God was doing in their lives right now and how it would compare to our lives. But what about, what about our opening premise? The things that you do are more important than the things you say. What does that have to do with this? Perhaps that's the greatest lesson of all that we see in, the, in this narrative. Joseph is at a crucial juncture in his life. And he's had four dreams, four supernatural, spectacular dreams. God assures Joseph in each one of those dreams. Don't worry about taking Mary uh, as your wife because she's pregnant. Don't don't, don't worry about the situation that you're in. Just do what I tell you to do. Second one was flee with Mary. Leave and take Jesus and go to Egypt. The third one is Herod's dead. I want you to go back. Go back to Israel. And the fourth one, Herod's son is Tetrarch. Not really king, kind of like a governor type thing. Okay. Don't go to Judea. Go to Galilee. Have you noticed... Have you noticed that with all this going on, Joseph never speaks? Not a word. I'm sure he was talking, but it's not inspired. It's not here. We never hear a word from Joseph. This is significant. He never complains, he never questions. He never expresses any doubts. He never even says, who are you guys? Where'd you come from? All Joseph does is obey. And he doesn't do it blindly. He's not some little robot. He does it in faith. He doesn't know what to do. Life is coming at him hard and fast. And his response is to obey the word of God. Even if it doesn't make sense. Ooh. Even if the facts, even if the evidence seem to contradict what these angels are saying. Even if it feels hard to do, Joseph obeys. Joseph could have spoken a million words, volumes, but if he didn't back it up with how he lived, we wouldn't be reading about him today. Maybe the most significant figure in the whole gospel narrative, and he doesn't say a word. Ultimately, he didn't have to say anything at all because his behavior backed up his faith and trust in God. 
So, where are you in this scenario? Where do you fit in with this? What does the way you live say about what you believe? It's not a test. It's just an opportunity to look inside. God takes Joseph's obedience. And Joseph doesn't even have the fullness of Scripture. God takes Joseph's obedience, his silence, and changes the world forever. Changes the course of the eternal redemptive plan of God. What might he do with your obedience? Again, we have the fullness of Scripture. May your words and your actions be a testimony to the truth and the beauty of the Christmas story, just like Joseph's are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way you use insignificant, what seems to be insignificant people in the scriptures. Because if we were to be honest with you and confess our hearts, Father, there are times we feel insignificant too. Oh, but Lord, you create big things out of nothing. Lord, you change lives. And even as you change individual lives, you change the course of history. So may we be a people like Joseph. It says, here we are. Use us. May we be committed to the truth of your word and to walk in a manner worthy of the high and holy calling that you've placed on us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand, please. Let's bow our heads. And now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In his name we pray. Next week we'll talk about Mary. We'll talk a little bit more about angels. Thank you for joining us online. We appreciate you. God bless. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.